I want to share with you something from the CDC website. Now, I know, and I want you to freak out, this is not about COVID, uh, but the CDC website shows that in the United States, the average life expectancy is about 78 years. So if we were to kind of map that out on a timeline, we would put our date of birth and then 78 years, and the midway point of that timeline would be 39 years. And I want you to think about that just for a moment. Of course, we know that none of us know exactly how many days or years we're going to have, but if that were to hold true and you were going to live to 78 years and we drew a timeline of your life and it would look something like this, where would you be in relationship to the points on that timeline? Are you closer to the 39 mark? Are you before that? Are you after that? Are you after the 78 mark? I mean, that may be true. And, uh, but where are you in relationship to this timeline? And kind of share your thoughts about that. I think it's important for us to think about that, especially as we get into uh, the passage that we're going to study from the book of 1 Peter uh, today, because Peter's going to talk about our lives and the time that we have on this earth. You know, there are a few certainties in our lives, and, the, and that is that we're born and one day we're going to die. And that might be when we're 78. It might be when we're 88. It might be much younger or sooner than that. But, but when that time comes, what happens in between the date of your birth and the time that you leave this earth, that's what matters. That's what counts. And so the question that I really want you to ponder this morning is simply this. What are you doing with your life? And you've maybe heard that question before, but maybe let me share a different question. Maybe give a little bit of a twist to that. What is your life doing? Not just what are you doing with your life, but what is your life doing? What, what is your life aimed toward and where are you going uh, with the life that you've been given. I want you to look in 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to actually start at verse 7 today and then kind of work our way back to the first part of the chapter. But Peter's going to make an emphatic statement that I think kind of summarizes what we're going to talk about today. So Peter writes in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Now when Peter uses that word end, he's not just referring to a chronological end. It means a consummation, a goal achieved, or a result attained, or a realization. Now, the New Testament believers to whom Peter was writing, they lived with this kind of urgency and expectation that the end was near. And so because they lived with this expectation, they suffered with hope as Peter has been writing to them in the letter, and they lived holy lives, and they loved one another, and they were clinging to one another and they shared the gospel. They responded to injustices with grace and with mercy and compassion. And wives submitted to their husbands who were unbelievers. And husbands submitted to the needs of their wives. And they blessed others. I mean, they did all of these things that Peter was encouraging them to do. And the question is why? Well, the reason is they believed that the end was near. With each passing moment of their lives, they believed that the end was near. Whether that was Christ returning to receive them or their lives may be taken from persecution or they died to, due to age or whatever it may be, the end of all things was at hand. And it's still true today. What Peter said to these believers in verse 7 is true in our lives that the end of all things is at hand. And so if we look at that timeline of our lives and we we're born and we're going to die one day, and then we kind of plotted where we are on that timeline. And the question I'd like you to really consider is, what part of the timeline should we be worried about? Should we be, should we be worried about our past? Or should we be living from this day forward? Because the reality is, none of us have a time machine. We can't go back 
and undo the past. We can't go uh, relive past experiences or undo past mistakes. And so Peter encourages these believers with something in this passage, and that is to live the remaining days of your life for a purpose. And so I want you to look, go back to verse 1 of chapter 4, and we'll kind of establish this context as we go through. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. What Peter says in these verses is, for the rest of your time, especially in verse 2, there are really two options. You can live for the temporary passions of the flesh and live out your sinful desires here, or you can live a life that pleases God by doing His will. The main point that I want you to remember today, and I want, you to, I want you to write this down and type it in the comments, is simply this. A life that pleases God is noticeably different. A life that is pleasing to God is a life that is noticeably different. When you think about the history of the world, history is measured before Christ and Anno Domini, which is the year of our Lord. History is measured by the time before Jesus came, and then the time since Jesus came. And in the life of every believer, it's exactly the same. Verse 3 describes the life of a believer before Jesus Christ, but then also describes the believer's life after meeting Jesus Christ. And I want to make this point right here. And it's simply that a life that pleases God is noticeably different after faith in Jesus Christ. So look at verse 3. He refers to the Gentiles in the middle of that verse. That, that doesn't refer to a race. It actually refers to those who are lost without Christ. Sometimes it would be kind of a group of people, a race of people. But in this context, it's a reference to those who were not Christians, those who were not of the faith. And here's what the first part of verse 3 means when he says, for the time that past uh, suffices. It means that you've already lived a sufficient amount of time in that lifestyle of the Gentiles. You've already lived long enough to know what it's like to live as people who don't know God. And look at some of the things he says, sensuality and passions and drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. What he's simply saying is those are attributes and those are things that people are involved in who don't know Jesus Christ. But once you've met Jesus Christ, your life should be noticeably different from what it was before Jesus Christ and he says we've spent enough time living there and maybe some of you as well that don't know Christ today you've spent enough time in that lifestyle and you've realized that that life and sin is not satisfying and it leaves you feeling empty well today needs to be the day that in your heart you meet Jesus Christ and maybe you're also listening and there was a time in your life where you met Jesus Christ and your life was supposed to be different but you've been living your life as though Jesus Christ never came. It's time for us to begin to clean up our lives. People joke about it sometimes, and uh, you know they will. The pastor will comment on their Facebook account and, and say, "Like, man, it's maybe time to start cleaning up my Facebook account." But it's not about 
cleaning up your social media that where will, your life will have a certain look to it. What Peter is really calling us to is to clean up our lives. That our lives after meeting Jesus Christ should be noticeably different than it was before we met Christ. Now look back to verse 1 because Peter uses a phrase here that I think that's really important. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. You'll remember what we talked about last week. If you look back to verse 18, Peter describes what that suffering was. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous in place of the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ suffered in the flesh in order to break the chains of sin in our lives. If you look down in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, you'll see that he talks about baptism and how that really represents that. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an as a appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So last Sunday evening, Isela, who's a new believer in Christ, followed the Lord in baptism. And in that act, she represented physically the spiritual reality that's taken place in her life. That when she placed her faith in Jesus Christ, her sins were washed away. And just like Christ was raised to walk in a new life, Isela was saying in that act, I'm raised to live this new life that I have in Jesus Christ. We don't, with our baptism, go under and die to our sins and bury, be buried in the likeness of Christ to then remain in our sins. We are raised to live a new life in Jesus Christ. And if your life is going to please God, you have to realize this, that you are in a spiritual battle. Notice the admonition in chapter 4 and verse 1, to arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. In the same way that Christ suffered in the flesh and then was raised to new life, he, Peter says you need to arm yourselves with that same mindset, the same way of thinking. To arm yourself, it actually is a military phrase, and it was used for foot soldiers who would take up his pike and a large shield and prepare themselves for battle. What Peter is saying to you as a believer is that if you're going to live a life that pleases God, you have to have the same mentality of Christ when he went to the cross for the sins of the world. You must die to yourself and live unto God. And to arm yourselves with the same mind and purpose to suffer in the flesh so that sin is dead to you. That its power no longer has a hold on your life. You can hear that when he says that we can cease from sin in verse 1. He's not referring to some kind of perfection that we would be able to attain this life where we would never sin. But what he's saying is we, we live in Christ and we arm ourselves in mind with the same mind of Christ so that we can cease from that sin in our lives. Notice verse 2 because I think this verse is so important to understand all of what Peter is saying. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. To spend the rest of your time not living that life of sin that you had before Christ, but to live your life for the will of God and to live your life in such a way that it pleases God for all eternity. So for the rest of the time that you have left, whether you're at that halfway mark or whether you have two years left or you have 20 years or you have 70 years left, what Peter says, with the time that you have left, you have one of two options. Live for the temporary passions of the flesh and sin or live your life to please God by doing the will of God. 
So you have to decide today, with the time that God gives me, how will I spend it? How will I live my life? And Peter says, you've spent enough time living for yourselves and living for the human passions and desires. And he calls us to live our lives today to please God and to do the will of God. You see, a life that pleases God is noticeably different. It's noticeably different after we meet Jesus Christ. And we must be prepared for the consequences of this kind of life. If we're going to live a life that pleases God by being noticeably different after we met Christ, there are some things that are going to come with that. Notice verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you because they will get, excuse me, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that through that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might, they might live in the spirit the way God does. In verse 4, Peter tells us of a, of a reality that I think we have to be ready for. And that is that your friends, if you're living a life that is pleasing to God in all areas of your life, your friends may think it's strange. They're going to think that it's weird that you make a decision. You know what? I'm not going to live that club lifestyle anymore. I'm going to live my life to please God in every aspect. They'll think it's weird that you won't join in with the vulgar language. And they'll think it's strange that you're not going to miss church on Sunday to be a part of a sporting event uh, or to spend it at the, at the beach or at a football game. They'll think you're weird because you pray before your meals, even in public. They'll think that you're strange because you're not going to go out on Friday night anymore and get drunk with them like you used to. They'll think that you have turned on them. They'll think that you've become kind of holier than thou or that you think that you're better than them. And that's not true. But verse 5 reminds us that as Christians, we are to let God be the judge of the right and wrongs. Those who would malign you for your faith and, and your stand for Jesus Christ, Peter reminds these believers, they will give an account of their lives to God. And you'll give an account of your life to God for the life that you live. Sometimes with my kids, uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with certain situations and we'll maybe get onto one of the kids or not get onto one of the kids, depending on the circumstance. And my kids will kind of, well, you didn't do that for that one or that's unfair. And I tell my kids, you don't, you don't worry about them. You do what's right. You do what you know to be right. And we try to be consistent with our kids, but we don't always, you know, succeed in that. Sometimes we fail. But I tell my kids, even when we fail, you need to do what is right. In verse 6 reminds us that other Christians have paved the way and received the same labels from men. In verse 6, he reminds them that for the same reason the gospel was preached to those who were dead. That doesn't mean that he went to preach to dead people. He's talking about people that were dead at the time that those received the letter, those uh, who had received this letter. And he says, while they were alive, the gospel was preached unto them. And in the same way they received salvation, you receive salvation. But people gave them labels and judged them. But Peter reminds us, leave that to God. Because he gets to verse 7, for the end of all things is at hand. This life is temporary. I think we lose sight of that sometimes as Christians. You need to keep that in mind as you live this life. You see, because there's a day that you were born and there's a day that you're going to die. 
And after that, the Bible says there'll be a day of judgment. But then we will live for all eternity. And what we do in this moment, in the life that we've been given, is what will matter ultimately in eternity. And we have to realize and remember that we're not made just for the here and now. We are made to live forever in the presence of God. And so live the life that you have now to please God in all things. And when you do that, a life that pleases God is noticeably different. In verse 7, Peter gives one of those differences. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. A life that pleases God is not only different after you meet Christ, but a life that pleases God has a noticeably different mindset. I want you to write that statement in the comments just as a declaration so that you'll remember it. A life that pleases God has a noticeably different mindset. Notice in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. And then that's followed by the word therefore. In light of that, because the end of all things is at hand, this is how you are to live your life. Be self-controlled and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. It means to keep your mind steady and clear and under control. I sometimes marvel at Christians. There's a natural disaster that happens or maybe a politician gets elected that we don't agree with or we go through a pandemic or we go through all the negative news and, and some of the bad times that we go through and, and it makes them want to quit and give up and we become a little bit paralyzed or we, we, we kind of get, get to this point where everything is about panic and what Peter says in that verse is the end of all things is, is at hand but don't go panicking but at the same time don't shut down either you are to live as though Christ may come today but know that that may be after your lifetime I was reading recently uh, about Captain Sullenberger who landed the flight on the Hudson River back in 2009 and if you ever have a moment, you could go on YouTube, you can look it up, and you can actually find uh, the cockpit uh, voice recorder of that event. And they had just over two minutes from the time that they struck the birds to land that safely on the Hudson River. And they're flying, and they lose power in both engines over the one of the most densely populated areas in all of the Earth. And when you hear interviews with Captain Sullenberger after the event, he's so calm and meticulous about what happened. That he, he made the decision in that moment, I want to read, uh, that a, there was a quote that I read that he said that he was attempting something that had never been done or practiced before. And he said this, this was a novel event that we had never trained for, yet I was able to set clear priorities. I took what I did know, adapted it, and applied it in a new way to solve a problem I'd never seen before. And then he said, I, I, he began to take stock of the situation and he quickly arrived at this goal. I was willing to sacrifice the airplane to save lives. I realized the only other place in the entire New York metropolitan area, one of the most densely populated and developed areas on the planet, that was long enough, wide enough, and smooth enough to even attempt a large, fast, heavy jet airliner was the Hudson River. Now, I don't know about you, but I, and I'm not a pilot, and I haven't gone through all of his training, but I'm pretty sure that if I lose power in both engines from a bird strike and we begin to descend immediately, I'm not going to be as cool and as calm as he was. And even when you hear the interviews and he talks about those moments, it's like his blood pressure never raises. His heartbeat never gets higher. He just 
was calm and cool under pressure and landed it safely and spared all the lives of the people on that plane. That's a different kind of mentality and mindset. And that's what we're called to have in the midst of the chaos of this world, that the end of all things is at hand. But he says, be self-controlled and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Whether life is good or in adverse conditions, he says that we are to be noticeably different in our mindsets. Keep our minds steady and clear. The fact that the final consummation at all things of all things is at hand should lead us as Christians to steady thinking about the job that God has given us, to live a life that pleases God by doing his will. And notice what he says at the end of verse 7, for the sake of your prayer. Some translations say to watch under prayer or be sensible enough to pray. To be sober-minded is to not get too anxious in the moment, not to allow anything to get us off track or get us out of focus, but to be ready for the spiritual battle that we face, to have a mind that is armed and ready for the battles that come into our lives every day. The motto of the Revolutionary War for the Americans was, trust in God, but keep your powder dry. And the idea was we're going to go to battle and we're going to trust God for the outcome of this. But at the same time, we're going to have the weapons of warfare ready for our defense and ready for the enemy. And what we should be doing as Christians is pray for the return of Christ. And I am praying for that Christ would return, would return. But also that we should be praying that until he does, that we would be faithful to live a life that pleases God. A life that pleases God is noticeably different. Our lives should be different after we meet Jesus Christ. We shouldn't be living in the life of sin that we had before Christ, but to live holy and blameless lives until the return of Jesus Christ or the end of all things. But we should also have a different mindset. We should be self-controlled and be ready for the battles and not easily swayed by all of our passions. But in verse 8, Peter says something else should be noticeably different about us. A life that pleases God has a noticeably different love. In verse 8, above all, keep love, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. I love that first phrase of verse 8. It's so striking to me. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. That word translated above, it means before. It talks about priority. And so he says, before keeping a clear head or before living pure lives, before praying, love one another earnestly or fervently. That word earnestly, it means to be stretched out. I was watching on ESPN recently a documentary about the world's strongest man competition. And on one of the events, they put these men between these two huge pillars and I don't remember how many hundreds of pounds they each weigh but they they're put there between them and then those there are handles attached to those pillars with chains and they release those pillars and those pillars began to uh they fall away and the the strongest man the, the men have to stand there and hold them as long as they can and you watch that that event and their arms are stretching out and they have to use their their arm muscles and their chest muscles and they're straining and they begin to shake trying to hold on for the last few seconds. And that's the word, that's the idea, the image of that word earnestly. It means to be stretched out. It talks about an athlete trying to finish at the end of a race and stretching forward toward the goal. In that verse, in verse 8, 
Peter actually quotes a line from Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 12 that says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Now that word cover doesn't mean to forgive. It also doesn't mean to overlook. It means to cover or to hide. You see, hatred stirs up strife. And we see a lot of that in our culture and in our, in our world today. But I want you to think about your church as you're sitting there in your home or at a restaurant or wherever you may be today. I want you to think about the people in your church. We are all imperfect people. And because of this, there are going to be offenses. It just happens. Hurt people hurt people. And so imperfect people end up causing damage sometimes. Sometimes we don't respond to someone the way that we should. Sometimes we don't show enough concern for someone who's going through difficulty. And that can hurt people. And so in the church, there will be offenses. There will be hurts. And when those offenses come, we can respond in one of two ways. We can love and cover the sin, or we can stir up strife. Now, what does he mean when he says to love one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sin? I said earlier, it doesn't mean to overlook sin because overlooking sin and just acting like it's not there is unloving. You can't help your brother who has fallen if you don't acknowledge that the sin or the offense is there. What it means to cover sin, it means to stretch yourself to the point where you love others without trying to make the sin a public spectacle. It means that when someone, there's a sin or there's an offense in the church, that we don't broadcast it on Facebook or Instagram and make a big deal about it. But we do all that we can to keep it from becoming public so that we can love them as we should. This is important because in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gave some instructions to his church, especially in the church when there are offenses. And he says the purpose of dealing with offenses is not to make the sin or the trouble public, but it's actually to gain your brother. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, Paul wrote to those believers, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. When offenses come in our lives, and especially within the body of Christ, the goal of dealing with those offenses is to gain your brother and restore fellowship, never to take out revenge, never to get vengeance in any way. Love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't seek to fight his brother. It doesn't seek revenge. It doesn't seek its own. It doesn't stir up strife. True love, Christian love, a love that pleases God is noticeably different. I believe that nothing turns believers away from Jesus Christ like the way that people in the church sometimes fight with each other. In 1840, Pastor Greg Mott of Houston's First Baptist Church shared this on, on their website, and I thought it was a really interesting story. In 1840, Houston first, Houston's First Baptist Church, they bought what many people called the devil's instrument at that time. They bought the church its first organ. And so there was great controversy that surrounded that purchase and they brought the organ in and they installed it and then someone broke into the church and then they stole the organ out of the church and no one ever knew what happened to it until 40 years later in houston they were dredging buffalo bayou to make way for the houston ship channel and you know what they found at the bottom of the buffalo bayou 
they found Houston's first, ba- Houston's first Baptist Church's organ at the bottom of the bayou. Somebody in the church got mad and they broke into the church, stole the organ, and then dumped it in Buffalo Bayou. Isn't that a crazy story? But you hear stories like that so many times where there are divisions and hurts in the church and rather than loving each other, rather than trying to cover the sin, not overlook it and not you know, try to in any way justify it, but trying to deal with it in a loving and kind and compassionate way one-on-one before something tears people down. We must be different than the world. Right now, the world, when there's an offense, when there's a hurt, it's broadcast everywhere. We're tweeting about it. We're putting it on Facebook. We're putting it on social media. And there are wars and there are Twitter feuds that, that happen. And our love as believers needs to be different. It needs to be noticeably different from the world because a life that pleases God has a noticeably different love. And the last point that Peter makes here as he continues is a life that pleases God has one more difference. Listen for it as we, get, as we read in verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And all God's people say amen to that. A life that pleases God is to be noticeably different. We're to be different after we met Jesus Christ. We are to be different in our mindset. We are to be different in the love that we have for one another. But a life that pleases God is noticeably different in that it serves other people. In fact, I want you to write that statement down as a declaration, as a confirmation today. A life that pleases God is noticeably different in that it serves others other people as christians we live to serve rather than be served in verse 9 he says serve through hospitality when you read the book of acts i've shared with you that i've been reading it a ton since the the pandemic happened just reading it over and over again about the early church you'll see that they were hospitable they opened up their homes to traveling missionaries and pastors People were meeting in homes for meals and they were using their homes for prayer meetings. They held worship services in their homes. They were hosting Bible studies in their homes. And all of these things were happening as God's people opened up their doors to serve the needs of people through hospitality. He goes on to say to serve through the gifts that you've been given. given. And I believe this, that God equips every believer with gifts for service. And we are to use those and express those in serving other people. In verse 10 and verse 11, he uses the word minister, that we are to be good stewards and to minister to the needs of other people. That word that's used there in those verses, it's diakoneo in the Greek, and it means a servant. Unless in any moment you might boast in your service, notice what he says, you are good stewards of God's varied grace. Every gift that we've been given is not because of who we are. It's simply by the grace of God. And God gives us these gifts not to use on ourselves, but to serve the needs of other people. And this is a counterculture mindset. It is a different mindset from the world. We're taught that our gifts and our abilities and our talents are for self-advancement, for better jobs, for a better place in life, 
for better opportunities. But God gives us our gifts to serve the needs of other people, to see ourselves as servants of others. A life that pleases God is noticeably different. And I believe that statement is so important for us in the time that we live. That our lives are to be different after we met Christ. We're not to live the same way that we did before we met Jesus. That we're to have a different mindset. We're to arm our minds with the same mind of Christ when he suffered for us on the cross. We're to have a different kind of love. Not a love that seeks to exploit people, but a love that covers sin and seeks to help people and love them through their struggles. And a life that's different in that it serves the needs of other people. Your life is not to be lived for you and for your own good. And Peter reminds us of that at the end, reminds us of that at the end, at the end of verse 11. In order that in everything, in every part of your life, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you'll remember in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 24, Peter wrote this, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So many of us are living just for the here and now, but the glory of God and his dominion is forever and ever. So Peter tells us, with the time that we have left, Regardless of where we are on the timeline of our lives, with the time that we have left, we have one of two choices. We live our lives for the passions of the flesh now, or we live for the glory of God for all eternity. When we were kids in school, we would play the game, one of these things doesn't belong, and the teacher would hold up uh, different cards, and it would be you know, a duck and a cat and a mouse and then a book. And you'd have to look at those cards and figure out which one didn't belong. And what Peter reminds us of in this passage is that we don't belong here. He's been telling us throughout this book that we're exiles in this world, that our kingdom, the kingdom of God, is not a kingdom of this world, that we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and we're called to live holy and pure lives, lives that are noticeably different. When people look at our lives and when they hear the way that we speak and the way that we live and the way that we love and the way that we serve and the purity of our lives, they should look at us and say, they don't belong here. There's something different about this person that makes them stand out. Is that you? Are you living your life now for the passions of the flesh and the sin of the moment? Or are you living your life for the glory of God? Are you living a life that pleases God by doing his will? If you look at your life and you say, man, this is not the life that God's called me to do, to live, then I want to call you today to repent of that to turn from the way that you've been living and turn to God and live for him. Asking God to give you a mindset that's different, to give you a love that seeks to restore those broken relationships and seeks to forgive and to give you a life that serves other people because the end of all things is at hand. And when the end is near and when the end comes, what matters in that moment is whether we live the life that we've been given for the glory of God, or if we've lived for ourselves. And so I just want to pray for us this morning. Will you join me for prayer? God, remind us today, as your word tells us, to number our days, that none of us know exactly how many days 
we have left. But help us with what you give us to live lives that are pleasing to you. Lives that are noticeably different. Give us a different kind of mindset and a different love. Help us to not return to the sins of our past, but to live for your glory and honor in all things because your glory and your dominion are forever and ever. Amen to that. And so make us what you have called us to be. Remind us every day that we're closer to the end. And what matters in that moment is whether we live here and now for the glory of God in all things. We pray this to be done in Jesus' name. Amen.